Hello and welcome to the Global Voices podcast, your weekly dose of global news and local voices. I'm your host Amiya, speaking from Delhi, India. Each week, insiders from our community share what news matters more in their communities and how they build stories out of the local context. This week, we're doing something a little different. May 3rd was Press Freedom Day. And as part of our special coverage, we wanted to put out an episode where we spoke to people from different places about the state of press freedom where they are. It turned out to be a larger and more complicated episode than expected, so sit back and settle in for a double feature. As we stand here, halfway through 2022, it's difficult to deny that press freedom is facing horrible challenges the world over. Setting aside the journalists killed in conflict, such as Pulitzer-winning photographer Danish Siddiqui, who was shot by the Taliban in 2021, and Shirin Abu Akleh, shot in the head by Israeli forces in the West Bank on the 11th of May 2022, social and political polarization, legislation and increasing impunity for those who attack journalists is making it harder and harder for the fourth pillar of democracy to function. Elsewhere, the European Union saw the return of journalist murders when Georgios Karaivas in Athens and Peter R. De Vries in Amsterdam were gunned down in the street. Journalists have been targeted by violent hostility from those protecting COVID-19 containment measures in some European countries, notably Germany. New media and social media allow social polarization to create a feedback loop, where media is polarized by social divisions and social divisions are further polarized by the media. And in the Americas, visible and virulent public attacks from politicians have encouraged abusive action against and harassment of journalists, especially women, which deeply undermines the profession and the people's faith in it. This year's World Press Freedom Index, from which much of the information I have is sourced, saw a record of 28 countries rated very bad. We spoke to five people from the GV network to find out more about press freedom in different parts of the world. Fernanda Jaramillo from Colombia. Uh, first of all, I need to start saying that I have been a journalist for 25 years. So traveling around the country, especially covering and reporting on, in, on the armed conflict. Raksha Kumar in India. I've been a journalist for about a decade or so now. Um, while the issues I broadly focus on are human rights, I have been reporting on uh, press freedom across Asia really for the Reuters Institute. So I've reported from about 13 countries in Asia and specifically on press freedom. Vivian Wu in New York, veteran media editor and analyst, the former head of the BBC's Hong Kong Bureau, the BBC's Chinese news editor, who was with the South China Morning Post, Initia Media, Portrait Magazine, and many others over her 18-year career, spoke to my colleague Philip. Uh, so I'm Jovana Presic from uh, Istinomer, which is fact-checking website uh, based in Belgrade, Serbia. We, uh, we operate now for almost 12 years and we fact-check. Uh... My name is Vijayanto and you can just call me Vijay. I work as the director for media and democracy in uh, LP3ES. LP3ES is uh, Institute. Institute for uh, Economic, Social, and Research. And um, my research is about uh, journalism, uh, freedom of the press, uh, also uh, digital politics. What emerged from our conversations was that journalists in many parts of the world share the same problems. The most systemic one, of course, is the serious, severe struggle for funding that media faces the world over. Another one is the abuse of laws to threaten and silence journalists and media organizations. Vijayanto, Raksha and Vivian tell us about this in Indonesia, India and China and Hong Kong. If we look at the situation of our press freedom, for, for instance, 
you know, in the in the in the aspect uh, of law, for instance. So we have uh, uh, a law, um, uh, namely uh, law on uh, ETE, uh, ITE, so uh, Informasi dan uh, Transaksi Elektronik. So it's about uh, electronic transaction and information. But despite the name, that should initially protect the rights of the consumers of or the people. But what's in it is actually threatening the people, including uh, the journalists, because there is an article in this in this in this law saying that basically defamation article. So if you wrote something uh, and it can uh, cause uh, inconvenience to people, then you can be charged uh, for this. And it's mostly used by the powerful people to charge uh, the common, the the critic, the the civil society, the critical uh, voices, as well as the journalists. So uh, between 2008 to 2022, there's all, uh, already 14 charges of defamation to journalists. So um, when when journalists uh, face this kind of situation, so. I'm not sure uh, uh, whether we can do a lot. Uh, we go to, uh, for instance, to the press council uh, because it's the institution to to protect the freedom of the journalists, or uh, they go to civil society organization like SafeNet to protect them. But because it's using the penal law, so uh, it's basically not a lot of things uh, uh, that can be done uh, by by the journalists. Uh, in terms of this, uh, the, enact- the enactment of uh, this law. Yeah. There have been certain laws in, uh, in India which, uh, you know, significantly restrict press freedom. However, these laws are not necessarily new. So, for instance, sedition is a law that's literally colonial times law, uh, which uh, the, the, what is new is that these laws are being used more and more to curtail press freedom. So um, they're being used against journalists who ask questions. They're being used against journalists who make the establishment feel uncomfortable. And so the laws per se are pretty old. UAPA, uh, the Unlawful Activities Prevention Act, is also not necessarily new, except the way they are using it uh, against journalists is, is, you know, relatively restrictive and new. The horrible situation in Hong Kong. Hong Kong used to be known as the most active and most successful story of the press freedom in China. It's like Hong Kong used to have relatively free freedom, uh, free press, and uh, China allowed Hong Kong women to be the international hub uh, for information sharing and reporting. But this, privilege has been taken away, especially after the national security law has been implemented. And what we see is the free press is diminished and removed in Hong Kong. A lot of journalists are are arrested and the people in the newsrooms have been worrying so much about being uh, punished or um, they just run away. They give up the job as a, a journalist. Though this doesn't seem to be the case in Colombia or Serbia, Jovana pointed out that there is no lack of ways to harass journalists. So during uh, 2020, 20, 20, yeah, uh, we had almost 200 attacks 
facts on on journalists like uh, those are data by by independent journalists of uh, of Serbia organization so pressures mainly come from from the political sphere in addition to to the physical attacks uh, as they are most dangerous type of uh, of pressure that, that are happening not not all cases are not in all uh, 200 cases were physical attacks but some of them were but beside that, we also noticed like organized campaigns of, uh, discrediting, of discrediting journalists on social networks and tabloid media, also in the, in the other pro-government media outlets. So also uh, many media faced uh, administrative harassment, for example, tax inspections. Our colleagues from south of Serbia, one local me media outlet, uh, they had uh, tax inspectors for for months uh, in their newsroom trying to find out what it, no, that something is wrong. They didn't find anything, but uh, they were pressuring them for for months, uh, like every day. So on the other side, we also to to many journalists that are cri critical to the to, uh, to the ruling party. Uh, they are not uh, uh, they are not allowed uh, to access to events and information to public of public importance. Uh, so they are being humiliated on press conferences on of the government members or the president and uh, and and so on. And also the the uh, the other problem is that Istinomer and uh, the organization that uh, founded Istinomer that is called Certa are often targeted as uh, foreign mercenaries or agents. Uh, so if you are critical to the government, as I as I mentioned, it is very likely that uh, you are going to deserve at least one front page of some pro-government uh, daily or tabloid with a malicious statement that you are funded by by uh, Soros or uh, Rockefeller or something some some other donor, uh, which further allegedly means that you are working against uh, against interests of your country. It becomes even more dangerous, she said, when it is done by members of parliament in parliament something that is common across Latin America and happens frequently in India too. Raksha told me that often reporters at the district level and those who work for non-English media outlets face the most intimidation. One thing we need to understand is that in, in India, the, the English-speaking population is a minority. Uh, it's also the privileged uh, population, so English language itself is an indicator of privilege. And it is a tool with which a lot of people, uh, you know, it's it's a tool for upward mobility really that is that's the place of english uh, in indian society so given that context you would see that a majority of indians actually converse think debate understand regional languages a lot more than they would uh, english and so therefore the local politicians and local power brokers you know the when i say power brokers i mean uh, landowners or you know contractors or business people you know all of these people like anybody with power and influence locally uh, is most harmed when they see something unpalatable in their own language so that is why regional language journalists have have it harder in in india so we are also like when i say we i mean english uh, you know, people, people like us, journalists who dabble in the English language and work in the English language end up speaking to a particular bubble 
um, people who are like us, you know, people who, uh, and, and politicians actually don't care. Like they care about what their constituents think and how their image is in front of their constituents. And that, that is largely shaped by regional language journalism. One major example that came to the fore during COVID time came from a regional language on two actually, but largely um, regional language uh, newspapers. One was Henik Baskar, and they sent um, their reporters to kind of go down uh, the the path of River Ganges, where River Ganges flows. And they ha- they found uh, that a lot of uh, the dead bodies um, that were well, it's disputed, but but basically unclaimed dead bodies were thrown into the river Ganges, and they found that these were uh, relative excess deaths. Again, we don't know the exact figures; like we don't know if they were actually COVID deaths um, or you know if they were deaths in the local hospital and that the hospitals did not want to account for them. But basically, these were excess deaths that were flowing down river Ganges, and you had a regional language newspaper that exposed this. Similarly, there was a regional language newspaper in Gujarat that exposed the fact that uh, a cemetery in Ahmedabad, an electric cemetery in Ahmedabad, had uh, constantly been on or constantly been used uh, for many more hours than it should be. So the walls of the cemetery had blackened. And you'll see that you know, there were immediate repercussions. Um, the One of the senior editors of the Enik Bhaskar, who, uh, which had exposed the dead bodies in Ganga story, wrote for the New York Times. He wrote uh, um, an op-ed for the New York Times and, and immediately faced repercussions. There were cases against him. I'm not really sure if he got to keep his job. The Danik Bhaskar, just so you know, is actually ranked fourth in the world for circulation and it is India's largest circulating newspaper in all languages. And the state of Gujarat is where the head of the current Indian government, um, Narendra Modi, hails from. Fernanda also said that indigenous reporters face the worst problems in Colombia. This violence targets journalists in general, but there is also a specific target within the department or province where I am living right now, which is Cauca, South Colombia. Uh, Indigenous reporters face even more uh, risks than us because they are challenging the state in a different way. They are challenging the state idea about motherland and they have been killed and injured while reporting on mother earth, freedom or liberation. Of course, threats and intimidation are common across the board. Also, uh, in terms of uh, security, uh, there's also uh, some problem uh, in which uh, the journalists uh, um, facing, uh, facing situations, facing threat, yeah? Uh, the data from uh, Aji, for instance, uh, this is the Alliance of uh, Independent Journalists. There are 43 cases of uh, violence uh, in 2021. Uh, in, um, they are including intimidation, nine cases, threats, uh, five cases, uh, physical violence, uh, seven cases, 
digital attacks, uh, five cases, disruption, or when they're reporting their, their, their news or they, they're doing their job to cover a news day, they got uh, some attacks uh, also in the field. That's uh, uh, seven cases. And also there's an interesting survey uh, conducted by Indonesian Alliance of uh, Journalists in which uh, they did research to 125 journalists in which 60% of them reporting that they experienced digital attacks, including uh, hacking, doxing, surveillance, the domain attack, forced exposure online, and also uh, disinformation. We, we observe how police uh, injure journalists during the, for instance, the struggle last year and the previous years, yeah? Because I was, I was lucky, like I wasn't one of the, the ones that they beat or injured or removed their cameras, but this is what happened, actually. Another way that they challenge or make it more difficult our work is when they put you on, the, on this list of people that are talking to certain uh, certain groups or actors during the peace agreement we observed that I was looking if my name was there because I remember I was uh, working with them like interviewing them and everything I did was by email because I couldn't wear in Cuba in Havana Cuba so there are like subtle but face-to-face a challenge to reporters that happened, for instance, during the last struggle on the street, uh, they injure journalists too, or they stop another way. And I explained this in my articles for Global Voices is that I am a professional journalist, yeah? So I have this like certain, yeah, certification, but when you don't have that and you are on the street, it's a little bit more like you are secondhand journalist, you know, because you are not, I have that, I don't know if it's a protection in some ways, uh, but also uh, another thing that I think is critical when I go out, I'm not sure if I should wear my, my something that says I'm a journalist, I keep it on my back, but I don't like to show it because you, you, you are not sure if this is going to protect you or this is going to make you the target. All this means that the press begins to censor itself. Journalists want to keep reporting, but they need to make a choice about their livelihoods. Often the legal threats are thrown out when they come to court, but the journalist has spent large amounts of time, money and energy going to court and has far fewer resources to report. Online abuse, which is breathtakingly easy to do to someone, often leaves journalists, especially women journalists, badly hit, and they begin to withdraw from online spaces. Just trying to say that it is important for us to kind of acknowledge the online abuse that specifically women journalists go through. And if you're writing about issues that are political, you know, that have the potential to make a whole host of people uncomfortable, well, then you are, uh, and and you have a social media uh, account that is open uh, for everybody, then you're a sitting duck, really. You know, you're just opening yourself up to abuse. And that's what a lot of us did. And so we've all gone through that, sleepless nights, a lot of these... uh, you know, some of the stories that go unreported because of that, um, because there is a fear that we tend to become the story. 
you know, and we don't like as journalists, we don't want to become the story. We want to be able to tell the story. We heard something very similar from both Vivian and Fernanda. Another thing that happens to me on uh, um, Twitter was when, when we were reporting about the peace dialogues with the guerrilla, far guerrilla. I remember I was supporting the process. I wrote several articles about this. And one guy say, suggested online that I was a lover of one of these uh, guerrilla guys who were in Cuba. This is another like way to, to harass you, yeah? Like with the, with the gender issue and saying that you are not even a professional, a journalist, but a lover of someone that was really mean. So I used to receive this kind of comments online when I was reporting. If I say personally, um, I think everybody, as long as you, you live or you speak in the Chinese language world, you will suffer repression to a certain degree. So the truth is how you uh, review, how you define such repression and uh, are you um, aware of such uh, unfree you know situation and are you willing to take a little bit risk to remove this sense of fear and still decide to speak up so in my personal situation i would say i used to live under the censorship uh, but I never give up. It's like uh, I bear this uh, big brother eyes in mind. I know there are always somebody watching me, surveillance, uh, monitoring what I say on different platforms. I have this awareness of unsafety, but I don't want such awareness become a barrier for me to speak up. It's like you have to deal with the fear first and you have to believe in the press freedom and you want to take efforts to, to combat it. How to do it? It's like you need to decide to speak as free as you need, as free as you can, as freely as you want. Uh, so... So, but uh, my extreme situation is uh, my WeChat moment has been suspended for 24 hours uh, without any explainable reasons. But I receive a notice from so-called customer service team of the WeChat company, uh, which is Tencent, largest internet service company in China. And the message goes like, um, uh, we detect you are spreading some rumors. So some of your uh, user features were removed for 24 hours. We'll let you know later. If you have any inquiries or complaints, contact us at this number, number, number. Or you can upload your reasons to complain. And then in order to 
finish that process of complaining, you need to upload your photo ID. You need to screenshot, uh, screenshot some of your posts that you think are unlawfully uh, removed, but you cannot prove what has been wrong. Uh, you know, from your end. It's like, it's just a one end process of complaining. So I give up complaining. I just waited for 24 hours to uh, get my uh, moments back. Uh, the WeChat moments is somehow more like a Facebook uh, timeline. It's mean, that means you can see what other people say on their timeline, You, but you cannot do anything. You cannot echo to your uh, discussion in the uh, in the groups. You cannot like or dislike people's uh, uh, posts. You can do nothing, but you just sit there and watch. So that 24 hours were, uh, was horrible, but also I think it's, uh, it's a lesson for me to, to understand. Uh, uh, it's just a chance for me to understand how, why people choose to shut up because uh, that's the so-called consequence. It's like if you, and you, it, this consequence is you just, uh, you are re removed from speaking freely without knowing the real reason. So that's a very personal story. But in general, the repression uh, in, is everywhere and it really depends on the personal uh, assessment on your risk. I can see a lot of people, they're working in the system, they're working in the government, they can get a warning from their bosses. I was told that a lot of people, they choose to stay silent because they, could just, they can just get a phone call of warning from their boss for posting one piece of article that is critical of the authorities. Um, some, some minor actions. So this shadow of fear, I think that's the biggest um, repression. And that's also the biggest barrier to so-called freedom of speech. Self-censorship seems like the only way for the media to survive in this environment. But when differing voices leave online spaces and when stories don't get reported, the public does not have information without which they cannot make truly democratic decisions. Across the world, democracy is on shaky legs, with polarized media and society in most countries, and rifts only growing in the aftermath of the pandemic. Now, more than ever, we have great need of a free press to do its job and hold power accountable. And that's all we have time for today. You've been listening to the Global Voices podcast, your weekly dose of global news and local voices. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe and tell your friends about us. Global Voices is an international, multilingual, primarily volunteer community of writers, translators and academics, and human rights activists. Our multilingual newsroom team reports on people whose voices and experiences are rarely seen in the mainstream media. To find out more, go to globalvoices.org. You can follow us on Twitter at Global Voices. The music in this podcast is from the track Voyage by Nick Markton from our extended Global Voices community.